beauty of design automation is how it leverages computing power to bring an unbelievable combination of scale and efficiency to projects, while also managing repetitive tasks and freeing up professionals to focus on higher value, higher thinking responsibilities. Thanks to design automation technology, you can really shift thinking about your computer as a tool and instead look upon it as a partner. Hello, I'm your host, Paul Teese, and on this episode of If Win, we're discussing design automation with Anthony Hauk, co-founder and COO of Hypar, and Jerry Dean, Vice President, Design Delivery Transformation at Jacobs. Anthony and Jerry shared with me their insights on some of the amazing things that design automation can deliver, how it benefits clients and the professionals who depend upon it, and what organizations should consider when investing in design automation, upskilling opportunities, and removing barriers to adoption. Anthony and Jerry, thank you both so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to talking with both of you about design automation and uh, kind of what the technology is, what it allows us to do, and where it's going. So um, thank you both for joining me. Uh, Anthony, I'm going to start with you, and we'll just kind of this will be our, our kickoff question, but, you know, can you briefly explain what the design automation is? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, one of those things you could spend an hour explaining and ask, you know, four people and get 12 answers out of them. But, you know, the way the way we think about it at uh, Hypar, it's uh, essentially capturing the expertise of professionals so it can be applied in multiple contexts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to expand on that, you know, there are ways, for example, that steel structures go together, that spaces lay out, that pipes run through buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of this stuff is formulaically derivable um, out of best practices. And so what we do is we work with a lot of companies uh, to find out what those best practices are and help their experts actually scale what they can do during the course of a day, Mm -hmm. because a lot of the regular rote work is taken care of for them. I mean, you know, kind of an example that may be close to many young architects heart is, you know, how many commercial bathrooms have you had to draw? Um, And, you know, they're, um, almost entirely regulated into their um, their configurations. Mm-hmm. So um, we we look at automation as a way of encapsulating these best practices in the industry, so that the humans can actually concentrate on harder problems. Mm. Yeah, I love it. You know, and it seems like you know part of the benefit is really it's it's time, right? You're giving time back to the professionals to yeah. do more high value work, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to the repeatable processes. You just let the computer do it. Just takes care of that, and then you can just get on with like what you're really trying to do. Yeah. Now, Jerry, you know what? You know, let's let's peel this back a little bit. You know, what are some of the surprising or amazing things that design automation allows one to do? Well, Paul, design technology has come a long way in my career and mm-hmm. started 30 years ago <laughs> in my career. We had just maybe five, six years ago transitioned fully away from pen and mylar over to CAD, mm-hmm. right? And then later we went, years later, we switched from 2D CAD to 3D design modeling. Mm-hmm. Now we are really into this we're in the coding and developing scripts to automate much of this design modeling effort. Mm-hmm. So today, piping, electrical conduits, HVAC ducts, 
they can all be auto routed. Mm -hmm. The infrastructure components can be auto placed. Mm -hmm. Reality and digital twins allow us to select design features that best suit operations and provide training for the future uh, of those operating facilities. Mm-hmm. Master asset databases produce equipment schedules for contractors. They can provide guidance for facility operation and maintenance activities. Mm-hmm. So all of these technologies are allowing us to deliver increasingly higher value solutions to our clients while either maintaining our costs or, or providing even greater efficiencies in our delivery. So that's really what, what these things are allowing us to do. Mm, so it's, it's not just giving time back, but it's also co- uh, cost containment as well and efficiency. So now, um, Anthony, I'm going to kind of jump ahead a little bit. And I could have saved this question toward the end, but I, I chose to put it right up front. And it's really like, where do you see design automation going as a field in the next three to five years? Well, you know, I want to kind of bridge off uh, something Jerry was also touching on there that that we see our our customers uh, using what we do is it's not just about time, but it's also about quality. Um, mm-hmm. We're talking with one with one customer uh, who designs certain types of electrical systems, and uh, due to you know some of the kind of demographic holes that the last few downturns have punched in the industry, mm-hmm. there's a lot of inexperienced people who you know are starting to come into the field, and a lot of the most experienced people are starting to retire. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is we have you know young engineers just kind of in this customer's words leaving out an entire class of equipment <laughs> out out of a design mm-hmm. and they bid on that and so then they just have to you know eat that uh addition of equipment that they didn't include in their estimate so what a lot of firms are also looking for is for you know the the more um inexperienced folks that are coming up through the ranks mm-hmm. who have a lot less men- mentorship than they used to mm-hmm. is to, they're looking for some kind of safety net under them mm-hmm. to make sure that at least all the basics are right um, it may not be the most inspired or perhaps effective design, but you know there are there are fewer basic mistakes in it. So that's that's one thing that we think is going to happen more and more uh, in the next few years as companies are trying to adjust to fewer people um, entering AEC and you know the entire baby boom generation retiring out of it. Mm-hmm. That there's going to be this kind of expertise gap, mm-hmm. and that. As people are retiring, we are getting asked actually, like, can you can you take Jack's brain? <laughs> we literally ask, like, and just download it, you know, into a piece of software, mm-hmm. so that our young project managers will have a baseline of expertise that they're working off of, and then they'll they'll elaborate on top of that to reach um, the actual solution for that particular project. Mm-hmm. So what we think is going to happen in hopefully, you know, within five years mm-hmm. is we're going to see a lot of this kind of automation helping people get projects to, you know, the 80%. And because, you know, keeping in mind that there are actually very few projects in the world that have high design, like that are, you know, so are artistically unique that they don't repeat something. Mm-hmm. So what we're hoping is that what we'll see in automation is uh, more and more distribution of repeatable modules of expertise that people can apply 
to different projects mm -hmm. so that um, we'll have a situation where we have a more augmented experience for the people making important decisions about buildings. Mm -hmm. And this is not just engineers and architects, it's real estate people, it's contractors, it's facilities management folks, so that you know they get a lot more information a lot faster are not spending time on um, a lot of things that are repetitive, as you were saying, Paul, mm -hmm. but um, but also just being able to make better decisions because they get so much more information as they're working through the possibilities of a new building or a change to a building they have. Mm -hmm. So overall, we we what we think is the automation is going toward being a collaborator with our professionals. Mm -hmm. Nothing's ever going to replace professional judgment. You know, for for lack of anything else, someone's going to stamp the drawings, right? right. So, um, you know, what we see though is that these automated systems become mm -hmm. something that enhance both professional practice, construction practice, all the way through, so that we get kind of the best of both worlds, the, like like good, solid professional judgment mm -hmm. supported by data not bogged down by, you know, deciding on how this wall is going to be constructed that we've built 400 times before. Yeah. And I've got to imagine too, and Jerry, my next question will kind of lead into this for you, but I've got to imagine with that demographic skills gap that Anthony's alluding to, you know, the talent <laughs> is kind of is walking out the out of the industry because it's retiring that, you know, things like artificial intelligence and like all these data sets are going to be even more critically important, you know, to quote unquote, capture Jack's brain, right? And for the systems to be able to train off of that and train mm -hmm. each other and, and discover those best practices, those best designs, you know, that are repeatable and that are cost efficient and stuff. And so, Jerry, can you summarize, you know, some of the rapidly mm -hmm. growing design automation technologies and how might utilization of those technologies benefit customers and society? Well, let's start by uh, uh, piling on a little bit to what Anthony said here on the quality piece, right? Mm -hmm. so people walking out the door via retirement, even those that are staying in the door, mm -hmm. right? If we can use tools that produce, that produce or provide for consistent quality in our deliverables over and over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. Our quality is going to go up even if we don't change the workforce, right? Even with our current people. And then we have retirement on top of that. So the gap, which may have gone down now is going up. The, quali the quality is actually going up when we might expect it, expect it to go down. So all of these tools, many tools help provide that. <clears throat> whether it's design quality or whether it's operations quality, but some technologies like I mentioned before, virtual and augmented reality, mm -hmm. <clears throat> they give you they give the the owner vision into a facility, what that facility is going to look and feel like, how they're going to maintain that facility before it gets to construction, right? Before the design is completed. A digital twin provides the same thing, but really around operations of, of a facility, right? Whether it's the actual building or the process inside the building, whatever that digital twin is. Mm -hmm. and, and I can train my operators on it. So when that those new processes come online, that new facility comes online, my operators are ready to operate it, 
right? So it's quality now in operations we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And then we've got um, other things uh, that are emerging, like <clears throat> you mentioned artificial intelligence, but there's also like machine learning, right? Involved in that, right? Where the computer can sense past preferences, what was done on past projects and pull those elements forward. So how incorporate those technologies into our design tools, right? So that if I lay out a bathroom in a facility, it knows, okay, we've you've done 27 bathrooms for this client before. They all have these things in common. Here's some common features and functions. Would you like this? Would you like this? Would you like this? And you can pull those elements forward. So now we're providing consistency in a facility, right? Or across facilities from one to another. Right. So and then you have things like generative design. Now, this is one that should really excite owners uh, and customers. Right. Because today, when I look at when we consider a set of alternatives, we kind of do a manual process where we go through and we identify what are the different alternatives that we could consider for this facility. And we might consider five, maybe 10 things. Mm -hmm. We quickly shortlist that to three to four. And then we develop criteria and we run it through kind of a, 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 a process uh, of ranking those, uh, those, each of those alternatives against that set of criteria and comparing them to each other. Mm-hmm. If we, and if we had a lot of information in the computer, the computer would actually develop literally hundreds, if not thousands of possibilities, right? That it would iterate through. And then it would come back to the designer and say, here's what we think are the top 10, but the computer thinks are the top 10. Mm-hmm. Then we go back to our owner and say, we considered literally 1,013 available alternatives for your facility. And here are the top 10. What do you think about these? Is there anything you like or anything you think is missing? Oh, well, we can tweak that. Mm-hmm. Then it- again right so the owner knows we got the best facility designed for us so collectively these technologies resort result in more desirable facilities constructed mm-hmm. right for owners for the community right whether it's sustainability operations efficiency whatever their metric is for quality right they're getting a better solution. It's not just about the time savings or saving money. It's just, it's a better installation for our customer. Yeah. Yeah. If I could, if I could just bridge on that uh, a little bit, this is exactly the kind of work uh, we've done with a couple of firms of like optimizing across, you know, multiple factors to arrive, you know, as you say, Jerry, like, like here's, here's the 10 best. And I have a theory of, you know, hanging over from when I was practicing as an architect uh, that, you know, Clients don't get to decisions easily because they hired you to be the expert and you're they're, you're showing them things and saying, which right. one is better? And they're like, hoping you'll tell them which one is better, <laughs> you know? Right. And so, but what I, what I see is um, as an outcome of the kind of, you know, genetic and optimization um, uh, workflow you're talking about is a higher confidence in, in decision like you're talking about. Like I say, like, we looked, we looked at thousands of possibilities. Here are the evaluation criteria. It's scoring higher on this, lower on this. In each of these instances, what's more important to you? 
Mm-hmm. And that's the right conversation to have with a client, right? Like what's important? Don't, you know, not, not like, should this wall be here? That's the wrong conversation. What's important right. to you? Is it, is it daylighting? Is it cost? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, collaboration spaces? What's your value system? Right. Let's find the thing that serves it. Yeah. Right. And I, I love, I mean, like generative design, you know, and they're using it now in things like automobiles and like consumer products and stuff. And it's cool because then you can like, you really can tweak variables like what's going to be more energy efficient or what's going to have a reduced carbon footprint or, you know, what will take the least amount of materials or be structurally the strongest, you know, or I mean, any number of things and the computer can just like crank through hundreds or thousands, like Jerry said, and then kick you back. Okay, here's five. You know, what do you think of these? And you can like you can adjust whatever variables float your boat to come up with the best solution. It's just really super yeah, fascinating. And, and, and that's why humans are never going to be out of the loop on this on this stuff, because we can't instantiate a value system, mm-hmm. a universal value system into software, right? Someone has to say in context, this is good, Yeah. right? And, and that's what we're hoping to do, to show people like, here are different ways that good can be achieved. Mm-hmm. What is best in your opinion? Yeah, absolutely. Now, now, Anthony, let's let's talk about you know organizations kind of standing up, you know, design automation functions. You know, can you talk a little bit about like the investment that's necessary and what kind of resources, you know, talent, financial, computing power, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. you know, typically that are necessary to effectively leverage this technology. Yeah, I, I, you know, we see we see a story in uh, especially design firms over and over again, where efforts like this are under resourced and continually are stood up and gradually peter out again until another initiative starts. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame. Um, you know what what generally happens is some you know technologically astute. Uh, professional starts getting into this, starts developing things, people see some possibilities, and then that person eventually leaves. Uh, often they get, they're underappreciated, their stuff isn't maintained very, very well thereafter, and then you're starting from scratch. Um, mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons we started our company. And so I really think just watching this happen over and over again, dealing with outsourcing organizations ourselves, that there's kind of you kind of need three full-time people to be working on this and they can't be dragged back into projects, you know, when the, you know, uh, the deadline siren calls, right? Um, It's really a matter of, you know, setting aside a real budget for people more than tools because most of the tools are actually free Mm -hmm. um, and deciding, you know, what, what they should spend time on and giving them the infrastructure support. So I, I talked um, um, years ago with a, an executive in a nationally known architecture firm mm-hmm. when my company was still in its uh, infancy. And I, I showed him some examples um, and he was like, well, you know, we're doing much more sophisticated stuff than this, Anthony. <laughs> and I said, of course you are. You have a whole R&D group. Mm-hmm. How's the rollout on that stuff going? Because I knew. Right. And, and he just kind of hung his head down. And <laughs> because. There was no there was no kind of infrastructure in place in the firm uh-huh. to take an outcome of R and D and roll it into production. That's where mm-hmm. everything died over and over again. 
Mm-hmm. By contrast, I, you know, we have a customer, a uh, large, large uh, construction company, also a developer in, in some markets. And I asked them like, so this thing we made for you, what's the rollout plan? And he just told me, he was like, well, we have all these people identified in each region who evaluate our software and give us feedback. Then we give feedback to the developer and they adjust it. And when they're all satisfied, then each of them has a task to roll it out in their region and support it. Hmm. And I was like, well, I have I have nothing to say to you now. <laughs> you, have, you have just outlined the exact way. But that's, that's the thing. It's easy mm-hmm. to quickly invest in technology, stand up some things. Yeah. But what you need is the social infrastructure to make all that actually turn into production value. And I think it's underappreciated in a lot of firms. It's appreciated in other sectors. Mm -hmm. You see a lot of appreciation for that sort of thing, especially in like manufacturing, Mm -hmm. because, you know, they're used to that. They're going to trot in a hundred thousand dollar brand new machine. Everybody's going to be trained, (laughs) you know, everybody's going to know what to do. Their whole production is going to be redesigned around that because they just invested in a production change that they expect to get a return on. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, what what happens on the factory floor Mm -hmm. is what's going to happen in offices. And so people have to, you know, without perhaps going overboard into ISO land, um, (laughs) but, you know, people have to consider, like, we are going to change the way people work. What does that mean? How do we manage that change? How do we make sure it's successful on its rollout, um, however small that first rollout might be, mm-hmm. so that it gets good word of mouth and keep going? So that that's where we see firms fall short, like thinking all, all the way to the point of we will have new technology, mm-hmm. not the implementation piece. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would really urge people to think about. Yeah, and I think that you know, and I've I've seen this like like in financial uh, financial institutions and. Um, you know, and some of like business data that it's a similar kind of thing, like data science, right? People get really excited about it. The C-suite like recognizes that it's important, you know, for an organization, but then competing interests, you know, other things need to be resourced and stuff. And so maybe things don't get, they, they see it's a value, but they may not understand entirely that it's a value. Uh, and so it doesn't get the investment that it needs, or it doesn't have the institutional fortitude required to beyond just this R and D effort, but to actually <laughs> to scale it into operations, like you said earlier. And I think that's kind of, um, I think that's kind of industry agnostic, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that happens in corporations across America, probably with a lot of these like these new sciences and new technologies. So. So Jerry, this this question is is kind of dovetails on that and what and Anthony mm-hmm. was saying. You know, what are some of the significant barriers to adoption for an organization to deploy design automation at scale? You know, what are they and how are they typically overcome? Okay, well, this can be really hard. I would say I can think of three big ones. Uh, there's there's obviously more, mm-hmm. but learning, education, right for sure. Company culture and just people's reluctance to change in general. And so, speaking on the first one, um, just talk about education. You know, design automation technologies are advancing very rapidly. So, what's available today is 
tenfold what was available 10, 15 years ago. And I can think back to operations I ran 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And we were doing 3D design modeling. I felt like we had pretty solid command of our design tools. Our people understood what to do. They understood how to apply the new functionality when it rolled out. We had pretty good command. Well, now the, the tools that are coming from our big design automation tool vendors, you know, the functionality is just accelerating more and more every year. And we just can't absorb it, right? Mm -hmm. Our just can't absorb it. Mm -hmm. So without a skill building program being in place, right? So there's, I think there has to be some skill building program that goes along with this so we can stay kind of on the leading edge. And so that's one of the things we're looking to build internally is a program that advances the skills and the proficiency so we can be more productive on our projects using these enhanced tools. So that's one. I would say company culture, um, you know, as an example, we are a very entrepreneurial culture in Jacobs. So uh, our vice presidents of operations are entrepreneurial. They connect with clients. They collaborate locally. They're told, "Be hey, we don't you don't have a lot of handcuffs put on you, right? Go be entrepreneurial. Give our clients the best solution you can." Well, a lot of times that means figuring out solutions on their own, right? And a lot of times that might mean that they're they're really not super interested in a solution offered somewhere else in the business, right? How do we how do we bring um, those people along? That's a big barrier. And the last one I mentioned was just people's reluctance to change, right? Think about people, successful people that have are very experienced. They've delivered this type of project or this type of product to the market time and time again with success, right? I've, I've had my learnings. I've taken my lumps. I know how to do this. So what would motivate somebody like that to deliver something that might have greater success, but maybe brings an element of risk, right? So we've got to, we've got to give them reasons to change some sort of incentive or Hey, look, side by side, we've proven it to you. This A is better than B. You've been doing B, it's great. You can keep doing it, but it's a B. But if you do A, look at how much better the results will be. Look how much more you can do. Hmm. You've got to educate our people on the reasons why to change. Mm -hmm. I mean, when when um, you know, back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was a IT director at, at EYP and we were looking at um, moving up, moving to Revit. Um, mm -hmm. from, from AutoCAD, uh, you know, we, we encountered kind of the same pheno phenomenon. I mean, it's, it's going up to people whose whole job is to reduce risk and asking them to increase risk. Right. Right now. Um, and so we had a happy conjunction of events where we were, um, you know, as part of the management of the firm, you know, we were all going to the project managers and saying, get your multipliers up. What are you guys doing? You're like below three, what's happening. Mm -hmm. Right. And at the same time, we handed Revit to a young um, architect 
who started banging out developer projects at 5.0 multipliers. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted Revit. Now, that wasn't the reason he was banging out 5.0 multipliers exclusively, but there was a clear example that somebody could be highly profitable using a new tool at a time where we were really putting pressure on the project managers to get more profitable. And so, you know, there's a little bit of, you know, Jerry, you talk about like, like entrepreneurial, like moments, like, that's kind of one of them, right? There's, if there's some conjunction of a, a real business goal that clearly the technology can enhance, um, coupled preferably with someone's personal goals for the year, then you've got a, a real flywheel. Yeah, right? and I don't, I don't want to overplay this, but like I, I think going back to Anthony, what you were saying about demographics a little earlier and about that gap, I remember again, like being in the financial and risk and tax and accounting industries, you know, at another company. Um, the challenge there was like, for instance, on the tax and accounting side, they would come up with new like uh, automated accounting software and you would run up against like clients where you would run up against accountants who had built a career 20, 30 years using Excel. Right. And suddenly it's like out of the gate. We're okay. So now we're moving away from Excel spreadsheets and we've got this new thing. And it's like, I'm on the, the back end of my career, you know, I'm not sure I really want to like throw the baby out with the bathwater to learn this new software thing. Right. You know, and I've got pressures, I got time pressures, I have to deliver stuff. So you're asking me to kind of slow down suddenly to like, you know, learn something new. And like, I can see some of those dynamics at play potentially. And again, I mean, that's, that's kind of, I, I admit it's like, I don't want to be overplaying that because, you know, everybody's different. Everybody has a different comfort level with like new technology adoption and education and their work, their work situation is different. But I could see in broad strokes, those might be some of those dynamics where it's kind of like, no doubt, you know, adoption is kind of slowed. So, I mean, think about this, Paul, we put our most seasoned, most successful project managers mm -hmm. on our most challenging projects. So let's say we have a project manager. She's been delivering, been delivering projects successfully for 25 years. Mm -hmm. Very well respected. Why did we put her on the most challenging jobs? Because she has a system. So now we're trying to change her system. Mm -hmm. So how hard is that, right? That's, that's hard. That's hard for her because she's got success. She knows how to deliver success. Yeah. Now we're saying, no, that's great. But... How about we go for outstanding? Can we do this instead? Mm -hmm. So there's some risk involved with that. Yeah. And I think the organization has to have, going back to like what Anthony was saying about like not pulling people off of a dedicated stream to like pull them back right. into project emergencies. You've got to have that fortitude to say, okay, we're going to, we're serious about investing in this. We're going to let Jane have the time and headspace she needs to acclimate to this new technology. And we're just going to be patient about that. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll find an alternative way to do whatever we need to do so that she can, we're making that investment and we're serious about it. We're not just, oh, we bought some software uh, go figure it out, <laughs> you know? Right, and, right, right. So, so I mean, let's, ahead, let's, sir. yeah, let's talk a little bit about folks starting out at the, you know, like kind of flip the script a little and, and talk about folks starting out at the beginning of their, let's say their, their professional careers, 
uh, where they would touch design automation. And Anthony, I'll start with you. You know, mm-hmm. for those in our audience, like like I said, who are starting out in their professional careers, can you speak to some of the career opportunities that design automation enables? Um, you know, one of the things that uh, we spend a lot of time on is uh, with subject matter experts uh, figuring out, you know, what they know. And so you have to know something mm-hmm. um, and being having some professional experience just around getting buildings out the door and getting them built and walking around on sites and everything makes the conversation um, around automation so much richer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's really, you can really tell when somebody has just been making software their whole lives um, instead of actually being part of what they're trying to support. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I would say, especially to young professionals, like even if you wanted to go into a more technologically um, heavy route in your career, mm-hmm. there is no wasted time. <laughs> um, you know, understanding uh, a domain is actually far more important than understanding whatever the current flavor of technology is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're a software company and almost every one of our employees is a building professional who went over uh, to make software full time. We have, I think, two computer science majors mm-hmm. in, you know, a team mm-hmm. of about 12 people. So mm-hmm. um, we find even when we're hiring for like uh, sales and marketing, we're looking for that that AEC experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I would say um, uh, the, tech- the technology you can pick up if you have, you know, an inclination to do so, mm-hmm. um, get some building experience try to solve real problems. If you want to start trying to solve things with technology, don't do abstract, you know, I can make a computer butter cup, like actually take a problem from work and try to fix it using using automation of some kind or some other technology because mm-hmm. abstract solutions just work. I mean, is anybody else tired of seeing pavilions? I know I am. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, go try to solve a problem. Like, this roof leaks. Like, like, why did we do that? What automation might have told us that that roof was going to leak? I mean, pick something and try right. to solve that problem. And if it's valuable to your firm, you might actually get to see it adopted. But that's that's the advice. Try to bring that real-world experience mm-hmm. back into the world of technology and marry them up in a productively useful way and make a tool that you wish you'd had when, when you ran into that problem. Mm, excellent. And then Jerry, the same question for you, you know, for those in our audience, sorry, not in their professional careers, you know, can you speak to what you see are some of the career opportunities for design automation? Yeah, for sure. So I'll speak uh, really from a design consultant perspective. Um, of course, most of our new new hires, uh, young professionals already know this, right? Technology is not the enemy. Mm-hmm. Automation is not the enemy. Yes, we are removing hours, but we're removing the mundane hours. Mm-hmm. And you and as Anthony mentioned earlier, we will need more people who have command of these technologies, right? To steer it and drive it, right? So it's creating more opportunity that's not taking opportunity away. Mm-hmm. I think Anthony... I don't want to just repeat what he said, but emphasize maybe a couple of roles, um, software development, mm-hmm. you know, so, and that becomes part of the digital 
design modeling, digital delivery, we call it a Jacob's experience, right? Of that, it's part of the role description. So I'm not just drawing. It went from literally drawing to modeling. And now it's how can I codify something, right? Mm -hmm. How can I develop a script to automate a process, to get more consistent results, to convey my point, right? It mentioned like, can we bring remote sensing into the design process, right? And bring intelligence from those sensors into our process. So how do I uh, kind of, how do I think outside the box? So I would say software developers, computational BIM designers, mm -hmm. right? Or people, a mindset of trying to partner with your computer uh, instead of just use the computer like you would a, a, a pad, you know, pencil and a pad of paper, mm -hmm. right? I'm trying to use, I'm trying to partner with my machine, let it, what can it do? What can I get a bot to do? Mm -hmm. right? Free me up so I can do something more challenging and think more strategically about the problem we're trying to solve. Mm. So I really think as technology continues this torrid pace, um, and we all agree that this is not going to slow down, right? Mm -hmm. More change in the future, not less. Those who can embrace this change, I think will find themselves in high demand, regardless of what the job looks like, they will be the ones in the highest demand in the engineering design marketplace. So that's what I would say to young professionals coming in, into the industry today. I love it. I love that idea of like thinking about your computer as a partner and not as a tool. Like, right. you know, cause I, you know, but I'm guilty of that too. It's like, a, it's a thing that I can, that I, I use, but it's like really kind of like shifting your thinking. And like, this is a partner. It's, you know, it's not going to replace me, but it, you know, if I use it right, it'll augment what I can do, you know? So, well, Anthony and Jerry, I, uh, I, I really appreciate you both for fascinating discussion. You know, it's, it's really cool like where this technology design automation and generative design and all these kinds of things, like where they, the possibilities and like where they can go. So I really appreciate you both taking the time today and uh, kind of unpacking this with me. So thank you. Great. Glad thank to do you. it. Thank you.